Georgia's DBHDD reminds people that the Good Samaritan Law can save lives during alcohol and drug overdoses. People are urged to call 911 and stay until help arrives. More information at opioidresponse.info. Howdy, it's the Bitter Southerner podcast, episode seven of our second season from Georgia Public Broadcasting and the magazine I edit, The Bitter Southerner. I'm your host, Chuck Reese, and today we're going to travel and maybe even do a little time travel through the Tennessee Valley. It was down in the valley that's called Tennessee. Uncle Sam started something in the year 33. Late great Pete Seeger with his song, TVA Song. Saw democracy's future when we built TVA. Now rivers that once ran unchecked to the sea use the force that was wasted for electricity. Now what he was singing about, the Tennessee Valley Authority, the TVA as we all call it, was created as part of Franklin D. Roosevelt's New Deal to lift the country out of the Great Depression. Large dams were built to bring electricity to the rural south, to control flooding, to prevent disease and improve agricultural conditions. And here's President Roosevelt talking all that up in 1940 in Tennessee at the dedication of the Chickamauga Dam. This Chickamauga Dam, the sixth in the series of mammoth structures built by the TVA for the people of the United States, is helping to give to all of us human control of the watershed of the Tennessee River in order that it may serve in full the purposes of mankind. Now, these mammoth structures, as the president said, did electrify the rural south, but many were unhappy because that progress uprooted their communities. There are those who maintain that the development of the enterprise that lies largely in this state The development of it, they say, is not a proper activity of government. As for me, I glory in it as one of the great social and economic achievements of the United States. As the Tennessee Valley Authority built dams like the Chickamauga, many communities were flooded. According to TVA data analyzed by Bitter Southerner contributor Micah Cash, some 14,000 families were displaced by dams built by the TVA. The TVA offered to buy their property so they could relocate, and many agreed, but others, like Maddie Randolph, put up a fight. Maddie lived in a small two-room log cabin with her husband and seven children and their property was going to be flooded with the creation of Tennessee's Norris Dam. And according to TVA records, Ms. Randolph threatened several TVA workers with a shotgun and in one instance said this, Well, I'll stay here until the water comes up and flow down with it when it does. Maddie Randolph obviously did not mince words. She wanted to keep her 14 acres. They want to beat me out of it. They might as well take it all. I ain't going to take a cent of it. In its report, the TVA described Maddie Randolph like this. She is a very domineering, tyrannous, blustering soul. Her stubborn, obstinate manner has possibly put up a strong wall to any possible successful contacts. Another problem is the fact that neither she nor her family have any idea as to the meaning of the TVA, why it came in and broke up her community, why they moved her neighbors away, why they closed the gates of the, quote, darn dam and backed the water up over her garden just at the time she wanted to pick her beans. But they didn't fool her, as she said, with her hands on her hips, for she just took her shoes off, waded down in the water, and picked the beans anyway. In her mind, the TVA had ruined a good farming country. Now, in the end, 
Faced with the prospect of rising waters overcoming her family, Maddie Randolph finally agreed to move. And her story later inspired the great film director, Ely Kazan, to make his 1960 movie, Wild River. I don't sell my land that I poured my heart's blood into. In this scene from the film, an elderly woman named Ella Garth vows to protect her land as a TVA administrator urges her to leave. Sometimes it happens that we can't remain true to our beliefs without hurting maybe a great many people. And I'm afraid this is one of those times. You're the only person who hasn't sold in this valley. Well, that's all right with me. That was the late Oscar-winning actress, Joe Van Fleet, as Ella Garth in Wild River. You know, the classic story of People versus Progress, when set in the South of the early 20th century, is typically associated with the TVA. But it is important to note, for historical accuracy, that the federal government actually broke ground on North Alabama's Wilson Dam in 1918, six years before the TVA formed, and in 1933, TVA took ownership of it. But regardless of who owned what, how rural Southerners reacted to the dams depended on one thing, whether they were displaced loggers or newly employed dam builders. Now, these stories have fueled works of art from Pete Seeger all the way down to the modern day, like this song by Jason Isbell. He helped the dam Today on the Bitter Southerner Podcast, Progress, Heartbreak, and Art, the TVA. a little bit of Jason Isbell's song about the TVA, and you probably know the name of Jason Isbell. He's the widely acclaimed singer-songwriter from North Alabama, and he wrote that song during his tenure in the band that plays our theme song, The Drive-By Truckers. Now, and back then, when I first heard Jason's TVA, I was struck by the stark difference there was in point of view between that song and a song written a few years earlier by one of his bandmates, Mike Cooley. Mike's song was called Uncle Frank, and I want you to hear just a little bit of the original from DBT's 1999 album, Pizza Deliverance. Cooley's Uncle Frank character was one of those displaced loggers. He didn't have much to thank God for after Wilson Dam flooded his community right there near Muscle Shoals where Cooley grew up. So I asked Mike to join us for this show to talk about that contrast and to play Uncle Frank for us. Now Mike wrote that song more than 20 years ago and when he wrote it, the source he says was a story his grandfather told him about a man who lost his home and livelihood thanks to the Wilson Dam. Now, it was precisely the kind of story that would make any young songwriter say, now, I gotta write that. But now Cooley's older, of course, and he knows more, and, and he never really carried a grudge against what the TVA accomplished. In fact, he says, playing the song these days has him seeing parallels between the days of those floods and the juncture our country is at right now. I never had a negative impression of anything that TVA accomplished. Really? In fact, quite the contrary. Yeah, and, um, and is that still true for you? 
Yeah, I mean, you know, it's the well, there, there's certain inevitabilities. I think we're at a very similar point now. You know, it's it's like you know, the country at the time it wasn't just about coming out of the depression and and it, the the economy would have recovered. You know, yeah, yeah, that's going to happen, but it was about you know. Is the country or is the United States going to come out of this on the forefront of the 20th century? Right. Or is the rest of the world going to leave us behind? And I think the in hindsight, you look back and it's like you couldn't do one without the other. And here it, we are at a similar junction again. Very. I think we're at a very similar place. Yeah. And I think it's probably time to let everybody listen to you play the song. And okay. uh, I'm going to say what my daddy used to say before he would lead songs in church listen to the words real close now <laughs> Son, that was good. Well, thank you. That whole song doesn't feel like an old story necessarily. And I, you know, I particularly think about what's always been my favorite line in it the banks around the holler sold for lakefront property. 
where doctors, lawyers, and musicians teach their kids to water ski. <laughs> yeah. Th- th- throwing in th- throwing musicians into these elite occupations was a uniquely Muscle Shoals area thing and a little nod to, you know, <laughs> I-, I think it may have benefited the-, the lucky and the elite probably a little more than anybody else, but what doesn't, you know? As you can testify to, we're not that many generations away from from stories about people who lost their homes and communities and had their lives changed forever because of the TVA. But at the same time, it was a wonderful thing that the rural South got electricity. Yeah. Because that changed things for the positive for everybody. Yeah. People do get left behind. You know, uh, you use the phrase, you know, or we, we, you hear it often, we have to drag these people kicking and screaming into the modern times, but some people don't make the trip. That's true. Um, and, uh, it, but, you know, this area, uh, you, in many ways, I guess in the, in, at, at that time, rural was a lot more rural than it is today, but in some ways uh, it may be more rural today than it was then. I don't know. It's hard for me to tell. That's where the divide is. But uh, the this was in the, height of the Great Depression, you know, people in those kind of areas didn't really notice. They were poor, underdeveloped before. It's like reconstruction. What do you mean? Nothing nothing around here was ever constructed much in the first place, you know? <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, it, you know, and, and it, you know, change is not something human beings are wired for, especially fundamental and maybe monumental changes to your entire way of life. Human beings aren't wired for change, huh? Well, I appreciate songwriters like Mike Cooley, whose work helps a lot of listeners, like me, do a little rewiring. Now, as we mentioned, Mike's Uncle Frank was inspired by stories grandfather told him about communities affected by the Wilton Dam. And that dam holds back the Tennessee River along the line between Lauderdale and Colbert counties in Alabama. A man named Joshua Nicholas Wynn was interviewed for an oral history project about the TVA, which is housed at the National Archives in Atlanta. And in his interview, he shared his memories from when the Wilson Dam was being built. And he was a teenager at the time, living in Muscle Shoals. We knew... Oh, from 1918 on, that the dam was being built, mm-hmm. Wilson Dam. One of the slogans before the dam was built was, Dam the Tennessee. That's dam without the end. But we didn't want the Tennessee Dam because that would ruin our playground where we lived. We, uh, as children, thought it was progress with a little P because it was wrecking our whole life. Mm-hmm. See, when I left for college in 24, the water was coming up, and water left my eyes. For a couple of summers, Joshua worked for the TVA as a clerk in one of the warehouses, and he had vivid memories of seeing the water levels rise up. On all of the trees, there was SOS. Uh-huh. It looked like SOS. It was 505. Which, stood which was the water level where the new water line would be. And that was way up on the reservation. And I told my dad it looked like SOS to me, which is save, oh, save, but it, it didn't work. But as he got older, Joshua started seeing things differently. Only four years after the dam was complete, he was working as a school principal in Lauderdale County, Alabama, and not far from where he grew up. Uh, I had the 7th, 8th, and ninth grades, three in one room. I had 12 classes a day, half an hour apiece. Well, guess what we used for illumination? Coal oil lamps. But life in that area changed once the Wilson Dam brought electricity. Now you can see the countryside is illuminated. We have the water system plus electricity, and it has 
bloomed and blossomed. Thank goodness for TVA. Those comments from Joshua Nicholas Wynn were available thanks to the Tennessee Valley Authority's oral history program. Mr. Wynn himself died in 1997 at the age of 92. Just ahead, we've got more art inspired by the TVA and the stories of the communities that were lost when it came through. This is the Bitter Southerner podcast from Georgia Public Broadcasting. It's the Bitter Southerner podcast. Welcome back. On this episode, we're talking about the eternal tug of war between progress and preservation, a story that is writ large on the culture of the South because of how hydroelectricity changed the rural environment forever. Right now in North Georgia at the Notley Dam, built and completed during World War II, and you're hearing the Notley River rushing up against the dam's rocky edge. Lisa Russell is a college English instructor, and she's written several books about lost towns in Georgia, including one called Underwater Ghost Towns of North Georgia. That noise is freaky, like a lonely shore. You'd think it would be the ocean, but it's not. It's all (laughs) man-made. It's those graves, those 84 graves that were left down there. Now, as communities were about to be flooded by new dams, the TVA gave residents the chance to have the local grave sites moved. Beginning in 1933, nearly 70,000 graves across the region were investigated, and more than 20,000 graves were relocated. But Lisa says that she was surprised to find out how many graves were left untouched in the areas affected by the Notley Dam. Notley is a very interesting one, all the different people that lived here. And what gets me, too, is the graves. You know, why did they not get all the graves? There's a little community called, a cemetery called Butt. <laughs> Two people in there. The relatives who they could get a hold of said, I'll oh, just leave them in place. There's like eight cemeteries that they had to investigate. Right here, this is, there was only two out of 86 graves. They could only find two families that wanted to move. <laughs> at 86. So what does that say? There's a lot of graves under that water. And it's not just the grave sites. At Notley Dam and other dams across the Tennessee Valley, homes and businesses were lost. All the markers of the communities now gone are largely forgotten. They lie submerged. And Lisa says there's even arrowheads left behind by earlier inhabitants, the Cherokee Nation. There's a lot of stuff lost, a lot of culture, a lot of history, a lot of archaeology lost. There's something about the past that gives us security for the future. You know, that we're, you know, the people that lived here, every day they got up and they, you know, tried to make a living. And then when that living was gone, they figured out a way to make a new living. You know, it's, it's, the, it's the power of the human spirit, I guess. You know, and that's why it's important. Well, she's absolutely right, and our thanks to Lisa Russell for giving us a tour of Georgia's Notley Dam. You know, when we visited her, we saw skiers and boaters all over the surface of the lake, a normal day on the lake, nothing unusual. But on that particular day, as we thought about all that's forgotten beneath the murky greenish water, seeing those skiers and fishermen felt absolutely surreal. You know, the land that was sacrificed to create those lakes and to give the rural south electric power all that weighed heavily on bitter southerner contributor caleb johnson when he was growing up in north alabama staring into bodies of water and wondering what was below i heard the the myths and legends of catfish as big as uh, volkswagen beetles and sunken towns and and churches you know with the steeple still standing and and graves that weren't relocated and you know as a kid it it just fascinated me i wanted nothing more than the lakes to dry up or or the dams to be to be gone so all the water was gone and i could walk around in that mud and 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 ruin and and see all these things that i'd grown up here and were down there 
That curiosity inspired Caleb's debut novel, Treeborn, which came out two years ago and tells the story of a fictional Alabama town that's soon to be flooded. The novel's main character, Janie Treeborn, refuses to leave. Caleb writes about that struggle and the history surrounding the property. Here's Caleb reading just a little bit of the opening. The water was coming, but Janie Treeborn would not leave. She'd lived alone in this house, perched on the edge of a roadside peach orchard in Alberta, Alabama, ever since Lee Malone sold it to her. Sold, maybe not the right word, for the price she paid, the price he'd take. But it was hers, and she would not leave. Rather, the water take her too. She'd been telling her visitor exactly how she came to own the house, which once was Lee's office, and before that his boyhood home, a complicated matter. To tell how this house and the surrounding property became hers, she needed to tell how it became Lee's. And to do that, she needed to first tell about a man named Mr. Prince. That's beautiful. and Thank you. One of the things that we want to do here, you know, is explore not just the history of this thing, but how it's uh, how it has come to be a source of various works of art over the years, you know, and I think it comes from something I've always noticed. You know, there's this generally genuinely interesting sort of love hate dialogue about the TVA. When you talk to Southerners whose families were affected by the authorities' work, on the one hand, there's the knowledge that the TVA brought electricity across the rural South and thus helped usher it into the modern world. And then on the other hand is the fact that so many families lost their land and the homes they'd had for generations, and that whole communities would disappear in a single day. Yeah, you know, Chuck, and if you read the history, um, there's this idea that that giving up the land, or and that's how it's framed oftentimes in the history, is giving up the land um, was this sacrifice for a greater good. You know, the TVA began and, and relocation of families was happening um, from, from around the Depression leading up to World War II, so a time when patriotism was um, rampant in, in parts of the country. And so there was this idea of sacrificing and it being a noble thing for, for some families um, and some communities to say, hey, we'll, we'll move, you know, we'll, we'll leave this land here and go somewhere else and, and start over. Um, and that's an idea that I think is a little bit of a um, a little bit of a, a myth that I never bought into. You know, by the time I was growing up um, in the 80s, uh, the long after the TVA began, um, I grew up in a time when there was a, a really big real estate boom on some of these bodies of water. So I grew up seeing, um, okay, these families moved, this land was sacrificed to create these bodies of wa- water to create this, this dam and bring this uh, modernity to the South, but who has access to this water now? Who owns this land now? And when I looked around and when I tried to find places to go swim or, or walk or be out in nature, I realized it wasn't families like mine. It wasn't working class families. And, and I assumed it wasn't um, at the time, you know, families who, who were largely asked to, to sacrifice that land in the first place. Tell me again the, the name of the little town that you grew up in. I grew up in Arley, Alabama. It's in Winston County. And how far from the, the Wilson Dam is that? Oh, you'd get in the car and go north about probably an hour, 45 minutes, you'd be in Muscle Shoals. Okay. All right. And, and I have I have a memory, you know, or, or a lot of memories, actually, of uh, being a kid. And, you know, when we'd go on vacation, um, if if my parents had the time and the money, we would go to Gulf Shores, right? And that was a big vacation. But if, if they didn't have as much time or money in a given year, um, I remember we'd go up to the Shoals on vacation, you know, for, for two, three nights. And uh, we'd stay in this Ramada Inn right there where the highways come together just before you cross the river. And uh, behind the, the Ramada Inn in, in the woods were walking trails. And, and the trails were sort of built through and around a former CCC encampment. And you could le- walk out onto the riverbank and along the Tennessee River, depending on the water level. And you walk up far enough and, and looming in the distance, sure enough, there, there was the Wilson Dam. And so um, I grew up going to this place, and, and those are really vivid and, and happy memories for me, you know, exploring the woods with my parents, finding the occasional arrowhead washed out of the riverbank there, and then in the distance seeing this, what to me was an, just a monumental um, 
you know, machine or, or piece of piece of construction um, in the distance. And it, it really loomed large in my imagination um, all those years since. I think the first truly monumental structure I ever laid eyes on was Blue Ridge Dam, which was a Georgia power lake, not a TVA lake. But, it, you know, I had the same reaction to it that you did. Yeah, I mean, there's there's no uh, where I'm from isn't even a town, Chuck. You know, it's a it's a rural community. <laughs> there, there's no stoplight. There's no fast food to this day. Um, you know, it's a school, a, a one story school, a couple gas stations, a couple restaurants, um, and a three way stop, and that's it. So I, I certainly wasn't seeing, you know, even two story buildings. You know, red brick buildings like you might see in a smaller town, uh, a slightly more urban version of the South, and, and I surely, surely wasn't seeing a skyscraper of any kind unless I went to Birmingham, you know, which right. we did on occasion. But um, yeah, so to see a monumental structure like that in a rural setting, I think is, it is powerful and it's it's mystifying and, and it inspires all. And so it's no wonder uh, songwriters and, and novelists and uh, would want to write about it. Well, you know, as you've explored this topic over your life and then leading up to and into the writing of your first novel, Treeborn, what were some of the works of art and history that you found valuable to you? A lot of it was family history. Um, you know, I did some some reading of, of nonfiction books and scholarly and historical pieces um, in writing Treeborn, but but really a lot of it for me was was family history. You know, it was uh, sitting at the table with my grandmama and listening to her talk about exploring the hollers and hills and woods um, where we're from before the Sipsi River was ever backed up and in, in, in in Smith Lake created. It was listening to her tell stories about uh, the dam being built and how fast the water rose or didn't rose and people rise and people coming to watch the water rise, um, you know, ferries being built to cross the lake um, before the bridges were finished. Uh, it was just a time that for whatever reason I, I romanticized in a way, probably because I heard it talked about a lot. And, and when I started writing the novel, what really hooked me, because uh, so much of Treeborn to me is about memory and how memories change, you know, the more we handle them, um, how they they can be faulty, you know, um, they can be used to say something that you otherwise couldn't say. Um, and what really kind of got me when I was working on Treeborn was I would listen to my, my grandmama tell these stories um, of before the dam, before the lake, and uh, my mom would be sitting there too. And Every once in a while, my, my grandmama maybe couldn't remember or she'd pause or be struggling to recall something. And my mom would jump in and pick up the story uh, with this memory or, or this, you know, this moment, this story as if it was hers. And she she was born right when the dam was being finished. So she has no memories of this time at all. But she had heard these stories and memories be passed down so much. And she had absorbed the pictures, you know, and the, the, the family history to where it was real to her. It was a memory. It had become a memory of hers as well. And, and that kind of notion uh, fascinated me. And, and I wanted to explore it in, in, in book form. Well, I read your book. And if you haven't read Treeborn, I don't want you to make the mistake of thinking that you would be reading uh, a historical novel about the progress of the TVA because Treeborn is something way, way different from that. Yeah, it's it's a mythologized version of that history for sure. Um, you know, there are inaccuracies that are intentional. Um, there are, you know, supernatural elements introduced to kind of muddy the water of, of what's real and what's not real. Um, and there are things taken straight from my family history and there are seeds taken from my family history that I've authored. Um, and, you know, I wanted to do that um, because writers I admire have done similar things. You know, the, the, the kind of touchstone I always go back to for this book is actually not a Southern writer, um, but a South American writer, Gabriel Garcia Marquez. And so his novel, 100 Years of Solitude, was just such a touchstone for me um, as a reader and as a writer for, for Treeborn. Um, the way he took his grandmother's stories uh, from this small village near the coast of Colombia and uh, created this fictional town of, of Macondo and the people in it and, and all the, the tragedies and losses and, and celebrations and, and gifts that came to them along the way. 
Um, you know, I wanted to kind of do an Alabama version of that. And lately, Chuck, when people have asked me, you know, when they find out I've written a novel and they say, oh, well, what's it about? Um, as you know, having read it, Treeborn's kind of dif- difficult to encapsulate in a few sentences. So what I've been saying lately when someone says, what's your novel about? I say, it's a redneck version of 100 Years of Solitude. And I just <laughs> leave it at that. <laughs> I love that. And, you know, uh, I pimped your book to a lot of people in a lot of different conversations since it came out. And and they're like, okay, why, why do I have to read it? And I go, well, it's kind of like Gabriel Garcia Marquez <laughs> set in the South. You know, it's 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 redneck magical realism in a way it's like you know i almost think that that if the south had a film director comparable to guillermo del toro this thing would already be in production as a movie hey that that's high praise uh, to in my book and i i wish we did i'm mean, i'm sure uh they're out there this filmmaker maybe they're just not uh to the point where they can make one yet so if, if they're listening um any aspiring filmmakers or working filmmakers, I, I, I would love it. That sounds, sounds like a great thing to me. Spreading the art inspired by the Tennessee Valley Authority. Our thanks to Bitter Southerner contributor Caleb Johnson, author of the novel Treeborn. Y'all really need to read it. It's great writing. And if you're looking for Caleb these days, you'll find him in Boone, North Carolina, teaching writing to some lucky students at Appalachian State University. Now, Caleb learned about communities lost by TVA dams through his family's own stories. And that's also how one of our podcast listeners learned about that history. Royanne Baer lives in Jonesboro, Tennessee, and she says her mom grew up in Catawba, Kentucky. But that family had to move in the 1960s because of the development of TVA's Barkley Dam. Parts of the town were moved from their original location in what is commonly referred to as Old Catawba to what is now referred to as New Catawba. The family had a general store and home, and the home was ultimately relocated to a new part of town. My grandmother had the house physically moved from Old Catawba to New Catawba. Uh, you know, they chose what I guess would have been considered a, a, you know, a prime site it was the highest point in the new town. Years later, Royanne says, she and her mom would stop at the home's original location. We would drive into Old Catala, and we would always stop. And we could get out, and there were two trees that mar- you know, marked where they sat. She always said they sat in her front yard. And they were right at the edge of the water. And she would walk the, what little bit of the property she could but most of their property was submerged. Now, unlike some communities flooded by the TVA, parts of Katawa stayed the same. They didn't have to move the cemetery. The cemetery sat up on the hill, and so it's still there uh, in Old Katawa. Now, as people left Old Katawa, even to resettle just a few miles away, the character of the original town was changed forever. Royanne says there's no question that the TVA improved the lives of so many people by expanding hydroelectricity. But for her, it is heartbreaking to think about all that the earlier generations, including her mom's, lost in the process. Her childhood home is still standing. It's just not on the land that she ran around down as a child. It's not the land where she went out and caught lightning bugs. In my mind, one is someone who, who loves and appreciates history. Two is someone who's from the South, where I think as a people, you know, we're really tied into our land. I, I cannot imagine what my mother and her sisters had to um, experience. And our thanks to Roy Ann Bear, who now lives in Jonesboro, Tennessee, for sharing her family's story. And stories like that of the communities disrupted by the TVA live on in every Southern generation. They're in the stories we tell and in the art we make. We've shared a lot of examples of both of those with you, but we've got one more piece of art that we want to include. It's a moving song called Hazel Creek by the Nashville-based group Granville Automatic. 
Now, Hazel Creek was an actual North Carolina town that was submerged by flooding from the TVA's Fontana Down. We asked the two members of Granville Automatic to tell us about their song, Hazel Creek. Hello, my name is Vanessa Oliveras, and I'm half the band Granville Automatic. Granville Automatic as a band has a tendency to seek out stories that are very weighted in sadness. Uh, This was a story that definitely appealed to us because of the underlying theme of loss that's consistently there, people losing their homes and never being able to return. Don't curse the winter time again That's when the crows control the wilderness Last year is when it all began My name is Elizabeth Elkins. I'm part of the band Granville Automatic. When we go to research our songs, we often look for first-person stories from that time, and we really try to get inside one person's head and sort of uh, make some guesses on the emotion. But this was a newspaper article that we came across uh, about a woman whose dad just started drinking when they had to, to leave. And so there's moonshine in my father's eyes is a line in the chorus, and it just focuses on that. Um, moment of letting go of the town and she's younger she's moving on but for her father he can't move on driving near those places and just knowing that there's something it's like Atlantis you know (laughs) underneath it just makes me wonder about what was there and the little pieces of history that everyone experienced that live in the town and how that's just no longer how do you erase an entire town it's so weird For me, there's a moment in the second verse where one of the stories we found we found in the newspaper was this this woman had two brothers who had gone and fought in World War II. One came home, one didn't, and the fact that they were out fighting for the United States in the war while at home their hometown was being destroyed to basically provide power for Alcoa and for Oak Ridge for them to go one of them to give up their life so this father loses his son and his hometown in both cases for the sake of American progress so to me that second verse is very compelling so appealing to me visually about the story was the thought about grave sites and how you pass them every day and you see you can see evidence of of people that loved these people Um, and I think when I think about Hazel Creek and I think about these tiny towns where people can't go back and they can't lay flowers on their loved ones graves it makes me think about all of these graves left undecorated and how sad that must be take away this idea that the visual is not the whole story. You know, you see this beautiful lake, but people do. They go to jet ski and have fun and fish and hang out, and they're one of the most popular recreational things, especially in the South. And I think we take things for granted, like electricity, 
And we don't think of the impact that something that big had on so many people's lives. And it does resonate. I mean, I feel like the TVA and it's just, it's a very big part of Southern life. Um, and I, I have such a love-hate relationship with the entire concept. Our thanks to Elizabeth Elkins and Vanessa Oliveras of Granville Automatic for taking us back in time to Hazel Creek, North Carolina. And we have one more bit of time traveling we need to do before we end this particular show. Months ago, when we first began building this episode, we hoped to find someone still alive who actually remembered losing their home to the TVA and who might be willing and able to talk to us. I called one of our contributors in the North Carolina mountains up by Lake Chattoog, Marianne Leake. I hoped that she might know someone or might know someone else who did. Marianne called me back soon to tell me that she had found a woman named Muriel Doyle Blankenship who was 14 years old when her family was forced to leave the Elf community in Clay County, North Carolina. Now, after the TVA completed the Chateau Dam in 1942, Lake Chateau swallowed the Doyle family home. This is Marianne talking to Ms. Blankenship, who was 92 years old at the time last year. Is it Muriel Doyle Blankenship? That's right. And I married both Joe Blankenship. Married Joe Blankenship. Okay. That has to be in there. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Now, Muriel Doyle was married to her late husband, Joe Blankenship, for nearly 60 years. The two got married shortly after graduating from high school. And at that point, it was only a few years beyond when Muriel left her childhood home in Elf. Muriel's son, one of Marianne's neighbors, had told her that his mama didn't even have one photograph of the home that she'd grown up in. But as you've already learned this episode, the TVA kept meticulous records. So we dug into those records and actually found a picture of the house snapped by a TVA field worker. Now listen as Ms. Blankenship sees her childhood home for the first time in nearly 80 years. This is... The house we lived in, it ain't hardly a house. Can you tell me about this house? It the roof had cracks in it. If it snowed, it, some of the snow went through the cracks. That's a, that was a blessing, though. Why was that a blessing? Because it was a roof over our head. That's true. That's it's all we had. Yeah. Now, if you didn't catch all that, Ms. Blankenship says that the roof had cracks in it that let the snow fall through. But she saw that as a blessing. Why? Because we had a roof over our heads. It's all we had. How many rooms were in the home? Do you remember? Two bedrooms. <laughs> <laughs> There's too many people rocking. <laughs> Muriel Doyle Blankenship had eight siblings and a single mom, and they slept four to a bed. Now, that was the family. Let's see, uh, Rosie, Viola, Virginia, me, and Vida. In the months before the family's December 1941 relocation, a TVA representative visited Muriel's mother seven times, the records tell us. Now, after his first home visit, he wrote that he did, quote, not know how this family manages to exist, close quote. Like other residents in the Tennessee Valley, they were ultimately forced to leave. The United States government paid the Doyle family $405 for their home. They didn't give her, they just gave her the money. They just gave her a check for $405. Yep. You're right. You're right. According to the TVA records, the family was willing to cooperate in every way possible to move. But at the same time, they were frightened at the prospect of the removal and the relocation. Ms. Blankenship told Marianne that their whole family was apprehensive about the unknown, but to the youngest children, it felt like something of an adventure. 
Ms. Blankenship told Marianne about the first time she took her siblings to the shores of the brand new Lake Chatoog. When Marianne asked her what she did when she got there, Muriel's answer came quick and fast. I jumped right in. Well, two months and three days after Marianne interviewed Muriel and showed her that picture, Miss Blankenship passed away. So we dedicate this episode with love to the memory of Ms. Muriel Doyle Blankenship. That's it for us today, y'all. Sean Powers produces all these shenanigans, and Josephine Bennett is our wise editor. If you want to read Marianne Leake's story about her visit with Muriel Blankenship, it's called When the TVA Came to Town, and there's a convenient link for it on our website in the show notes to this episode. That's where you can also get a link to Dangerous Waters, Micah Cash's photo essay on how the South was transformed by the TVA. And finally, we've posted all the TVA songs we've been playing for you to a playlist, as well as links to PDF files of the TVA's complete records on Muriel Doyle's family and Maddie Randolph's family. Our thanks go out to the authors who appeared on this episode, Lisa Russell and Caleb Johnson. Our thanks go out to the voice actors, Jessica Gurrell, who played the part of Maddie Randolph, and John Weatherford, whose voice is no doubt familiar to our listeners in Atlanta. And thanks to the songwriters. First of all, Mike Cooley, Ever South. Our theme song was written by Patterson Hood and the band that he and Mike founded, the Drive-By Truckers, and to Elizabeth Elkins and Vanessa Oliveras of Grand automatic for talking with us about their great song hazel creek we heard additional tracks from dewolf music if you like the bitter southerner podcast please review it and rate it on apple Podcasts. even if you listen to it somewhere else those reviews on apple Podcasts warm our hearts and they attract others to hear what we're talking about Our show is a co-production of Georgia Public Broadcasting and the Bitter Southerner Magazine. You can access more from each episode at gpb.org slash podcast. I'm Chuck Reese, and my three instructions remain constant. Hug more necks, abide no hatred, and spend your time doing what you love with who you love. And if that's going to the lake, that's fine. Just give a minute to think about what might be underneath the surface. We'll see y'all in two weeks with our final episode of season two. It is a big one. Stay tuned.